Hi, I'm Paul Jay with the analysis.news, and this is a continuation, part two of my discussion with Vijay Prashad, and I'll be back in just a few seconds. So in part one, we deconstructed the geopolitics and agenda and interest of NATO and the Western countries and the role they've played in, uh, in Ukraine. And in this segment, we're going to talk more about just why uh, Russia invaded and what's driving uh, Putin and Russian policy. So once again, I'm joined by Vijay Prashad. He's a historian, a journalist, a commentator. He's the executive director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, and he's the editor-in-chief of Leftward Books. Thanks for joining me again, Vijay. Thanks a lot. All right. So as I said at the end of part one, if the objective of Russia was its, quote, unquote, legitimate security concerns, end quote, which I don't really think was, but at any rate, let's say it was, um, they have completely done the opposite. The invasion has unified NATO in a way it probably never was before. I mean, at the time of the Iraq war, uh, France and Germany would not jump on the American page. France, in a very outspoken way. Um, Germany was, go uh, was going ahead with Nordstrom to pipeline for natural gas from Russia in spite of vigorous uh, American objections. Well, Germany was standing up to that in terms of Nordstrom too, at least. Well, now the opposite. So I, I don't get what the hell the calculation was by Putin here. Uh, so let me say, first of all, and then it's over to you, it, what, what Russia did under Putin's leadership, and I don't like to always personify it as Putin, although my, um, since some of these events have unfolded, I think it's more Putin than I thought it was, uh, especially that dressing down of that uh, head of Russian uh, foreign intelligence, the way that happened makes me think maybe this is more Putin than just his, uh, you know, a class of bureaucrats. At any rate, uh, what, what, what motivates this here? Because if it isn't really NATO expansion, which I agree with you, uh, you made the point in part one that Putin had no trouble with NATO expansion up until 07, 08. And even if Ukraine's a NATO country, there's no more likelihood they're going to invade Russia than they would use any of the current NATO states that border Russia to invade Russia. Uh, NATO's primary role is to dominate Europe. Uh, invading Russia can't be part of the agenda. Also, even mid-range missiles, correct me if I'm wrong, well, okay, they can put mid-range missiles already on the borders of Russia if they want to, and even if they did, it doesn't take out Russian submarines. So Russia always has a deterrent that can wipe out the United States anyway, so even these short-range missiles don't really change the balance of power. So if it isn't Really, and then, then it's, if it's really about Donbass, then why don't you just protect Donbass? So explain to me what's going on here. Well, it's uh, interesting, Sue. Um, if you talk to people in uh, Russian foreign policy circles, um, they will inform you that the security question is not, um, it's not just a minor issue. Um, if you put the pieces together, you know, yes, the withdrawal by the United States from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty in 2002, that was a catastrophic decision. 
uh, important piece of the architecture of nuclear defense, as it were. Secondly, when the United States withdraws from the Intermediate Nuclear uh, Forces Treaty, INF Treaty, in 2018, um, that's also an unfortunate thing because by withdrawing from both anti-ballistic missile and the INF Treaty, um, nuclear deterrence is gone. You know, the architecture that, that prevented uh, acceleration of arms, um, you know, the arms race and so on. Now, you said submarines. That's interesting. But now look at this. If Ukraine, under Petro Poroshenko, had denied Russia the right to use the naval base in Sevastopol, and if the government in Damascus had fallen, and the Muslim Brotherhood came and then told the Russians to pack up their ships in Tartus, there would be no submarine base for Russia during the long winter months. So suddenly, Russia would have um, this mid-range nuclear missile threat and no submarines to base anywhere. Um, well, well, hold, hold yeah. on for a second now. They can't get out of the Black Sea without Turkey, and Turkey's in NATO. Turkey can shut that off at any moment. That's... And which, in fact, they just did. Turkey has banned warships from getting out. And, and so the, clearly Russia has submarines that are already out. And don't they have a northern base that they can yes, get to? Yes, well, now, because of climate change, uh, it's getting easier to have basing around the year, even in the Pacific. Uh, but the Tartus base is really significant. And, and again, one could say, look, the Mediterranean could be closed down um, because, after all, the British still control Gibraltar and they could put ships into the edge of the Mediterranean, shut it down. I mean, there are all kinds of vulnerabilities, but we're not talking about, in a way, uh, the facts on the ground. We're also talking about perceptions. And I think that in the manner of perceptions, uh, there was a kind of fear that a buildup was taking place um, and the Russians were falling behind. Now, again, whether any of this is real or not is less important to the perception game that in the foreign policy literature um, in Russia, and I include, you know, people discussing things at the Valdai Club and at the St. Petersburg Forum, these became issues of discussion, questions of um, a serious nuclear threat against Russia. Now, again, Paul, whether it's real or not, this is the stuff that is being discussed by experts in the Russian side. Um, and so, that's what they're talking about. They're not actually talking about necessarily Ukraine being the base for missiles. After all, France and Germany opposed Ukraine's entry into NATO. Um, it didn't look like Ukraine would ever en enter into NATO. You know, that, that, that may have been a red herring, as it were. So the security question is something that in Moscow they took seriously. Uh, secondly, it's true that from... Um, when the Soviet Union collapsed in uh, 1991, one interesting phenomena is that the collapse took place relatively peacefully. Uh, if you compare the collapse of the USSR, you know, where the various republics from Ukraine to Kazakhstan essentially left without any bloodshed. You know, there was minor uh, conflict. In fact, the, the most uh, terrible violence took place in Moscow when um, Mr. Yeltsin later will send tanks to go and bomb the Russian parliament. Um, that was really where the epicenter of the violence didn't take place in Uzbekistan and so on. Pretty, um, you know, uh, pretty kind of bloodless breakup. 
Yugoslavia was different. Uh, and remember, Yugoslavia starts in Croatia when uh, half a million Crimean Serbs are expelled from Croatia. I mean, there NATO plays a sl slightly uglier game, uh, participating in various mutual forms of terrible, violent ethnic cleansing that takes place in Yugoslavia. In the various Soviet republics, as they broke up and became their various independent countries, there wasn't that kind of violence. In fact, in Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia breaks up into the Czech Republic and Slovakia almost entirely peacefully. Um, this is something to bear uh, reflection on. Now, what happens is that in many of these Soviet republics, uh, because of the dominance of the Russian population, there are considerable populations of Russian in each of Russian speakers and Russian people who claim Russian ethnicity in many of them. In fact, Kazakhstan, 20% of the population of Kazakhstan claims Russian ancestry. This is an issue being raised recently in the Duma, unfortunately. Um, you know, as Russian chauvinism also increases inside Russia, a question arises, what happens to our populations? In 2008, this question of Russians in the republics, now countries outside um, you know, Russia directly, uh, comes up when a war breaks out in Ossetia, in Georgia, in August of 2008. Um, that was an early indication of the growth of Russian chauvinism and the concern for Russians who live in these other countries. In Ukraine, uh, Ukraine has a fascinating history, Paul, because like, just take the last names of the principals in this conflict. They have the same, sorry, the first name. They have the same first name, Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky. They, say, they write it differently and say it differently, but both refer to Saint Vladimir or Volodymyr. Um, now, they shared a lot, but also have a great different history. I mean, Russia today, the heart of its, uh, you know, its elites and its culture was born out of the Duchy of Muscovy, you know, from ancient times. Uh, Ukraine was part of the great Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, you know, when the, the capital was in Warsaw before that Krakow. Um, they shared a lot of cultural stuff, but there are also, of course, differences. These are enormously plurinational parts of the world. Uh, Ukraine has an enormous number of minorities. And by the way, it's not unusual. People may not know that Tanzania has 130 languages. Um, you know, most places in the world are incredibly complicated culturally. They don't all descend into internal strife and civil war. But in this case, there are minority populations, Moldovans, Hungarians, Roma peoples, Russian speakers, and so on. What's very interesting is after the change of government in 2004, driven by the United States, when Mr. Petro Poroshenko comes to power, um, you know, he drives for whatever reasons, perhaps he believes it or he drives this uh, opportunistically, he drove a ultra-nationalist kind of agenda from Kiev, which included the banning, by the way, of left-wing parties. No liberals had any problem with this banning. You know, this was happening before uh, the Russian invasion, after which they banned 11 left-wing parties. That's Mr. Zelensky did the banning. But even before Poroshenko, Poroshenko banned left-wing parties, they uh, made Ukrainian the principal language, only language of state. Um, they broke ties with the Moscow Patriarch, the Orthodox Church, and they drove a kind of Ukrainian nationalist politics 
which had on the fringe sections of the hard right. And, you know, this is interesting because Ukraine has, of course, a, a hard right history, a fascistic history and so on. All of that was revived and brought into the mix, you know. And so that's where the pressure starts to build up very quickly within months in 2014 into the conflict in Donetsk and Lugansk on the border with, with Rostov in Russia. Um, where there's attacks on Russian-speaking populations. And that develops into the conflict that results in the Minsk II agreement, uh, which was done in, in, in the capital of Belarus. Um, now, in these eight years, uh, yes, 14,000 people died, of them perhaps four to 5,000 civilians, um, and the rest were combatants. But nonetheless, 14,000 people died, 50,000-plus people were injured and so on in this conflict. The ceasefire never really settled well. Um, if you look at the, the monitoring group, most of the, the breaks of the ceasefire agreement were from the Ukrainian paramilitary-type forces, but also from the Russian-speaking militias and so on. It was never a very comfortable ceasefire. Um, there were problems there, no question about it. Uh, that was one set of issues there. Meanwhile, Russia had taken Crimea. There was a referendum, majority Russian population. They voted to join, um, join Russia. Crimea is the naval base. But Crimea doesn't have a land border with the rest of Russia. There's just a bridge across the Black Sea. Well, Mr. Poroshenko's government began to cut the water supplies to Crimea. So the Russian government had to send tankers of water across the bridge to take water to Crimea. Now, this is very interesting that one of the aspects of this war, in my opinion, and that's why Mariupol seems to be such a big fight, is it looks like the Russians are interested in building a land bridge from Crimea to Donetsk and connecting Crimea um, to, um, to the Russian uh, territory. In fact, after uh, Russian forces left Crimea and moved towards Mariupol, one of the first things they did was open the water lines again into Crimea. Uh, that were connected to Ukrainian territory, uh, which had been cut off. So it's not just the security question, the existential threat to Russia, although that seems to be, from their perspective, something they have been talking about. It's also the question of minority populations, Russian populations in neighboring countries, an issue put off from 1991, as it were. You know, they're settling accounts with it now. And this didn't have to be so, because if Ukraine had in a sense, become a model plurinational country, then there would be no marginalization of these populations and so on. But it happened not to go in that direction. So the second thing is, yes, there was this idea, the great Russian idea in Putin's United Russia Party. There are people who've been talking about entering Kazakhstan, and, you know, it's madness, really. Um, and then the third reason was, uh, this build, building the land bridge to Crimea. There, there's a lot of things that focus the attention of the Russians to Ukraine. But frankly, Paul, I don't think this conflict was inevitable. I think there were so many opportunities over the last several years to dial back the tension. So many opportunities. And I'm afraid the United Nations uh, sat on its hands. Um, I think the European Union uh, you know, basically had a lot of highfalutin rhetoric, but once again demonstrates it has no independent foreign policy. The United States accelerated this crisis, and the Russians didn't do anything to minimize anything. They also accelerated the crisis. So 
this was a train wreck but it did not need to happen all the all the signals in fact i wrote an article in april 2021 laying out um the kind of areas of agreement and saying if there is no discussion on these things war is inevitable that was april 2021 i mean it, it really seems like both the us and russia wanted this war uh the russians seem to have completely underestimated uh how this would unfold uh they you know in talking to some of the uh left activists from ukraine they they can only speculate as well but they think that putin just thought this would be another crimea that it would be a cakewalk and there'd actually be a certain amount of popular support i think zelensky was down to 24% in the polls his government was seen as uh ineffective um and but but i i i think it's important if if you agree with me uh, that that in terms of understanding the geopolitical tactical objectives of russia whether it's a land bridge to to uh, crimea even legitimate security concerns um nothing justifies the invasion there was not an imminent threat of an attack on russia they violated the un charter and and two they've achieved nothing in terms of you know if as i said earlier in terms of legitimate security concerns they have completely achieved the opposite of that uh and the whole practical uh, public opinion and most of the world's inflamed against russia and certainly in a west uh, the russophobia is now beyond measurement uh, it's like during the war against japan or germany the the extent of what it's practically racist in a way the way russians are being dealt with like imagine firing the the soprano of the metropolitan opera because she won't sign a document denouncing putin i mean this is out and out like mccarthyism but all that said the russians did this whatever the americans induced them or provoked them whatever you know it's not the devil didn't make me do this the you know they decided to do that and when i asked the ukrainian activists why they think russia did this their answer is because in the final analysis they do have big power ambitions they really do think ukraine should be within the russian sphere of influence and international law didn't matter much and one of them said once they saw how america invaded iraq with complete impunity russians think well then why can't we do the same thing well the first thing is actually i i don't agree with you about world opinion i think it's much more uh, mixed um i i was well i think i said in the west no, I mean, if i the, said in the west i agree with you but yeah, opinion, no i think I world think, opinions much more divided is not so clear yeah yeah i i you know i i've been following the situation in south africa where from cyril ramaphosa the president all the way down to activists at uh, the anc in the enff uh, and so on julius malema they've all come out basically on a plank which looks like they say well you know Russia has the right to do something like this. I mean it's interesting uh, to follow what they say in India for instance. Um the right section of the right Mr Modi and then downwards um seems to think that uh, what Russia is doing is legitimate and that's interesting. You know they are refusing to condemn the Russian invasion and that is something to bear reflection on. Uh, and I think it's important to point out this Modi government is not a government that cares 
too much about human rights and international law. So no, that may be so, yeah. and and nor do most governments in the world. But nonetheless, yeah, true enough. Uh, true the enough. Modi government, you know, was very close ally of the United States as part of the Quad with Japan and Australia and the squeeze against China and so on. And it, you can't explain this by saying 60% of Indian arms imports are from Russia. That's not a sufficient explanation. It's more than that. In fact, they are looking at the world and they are saying, well, you know, if the United States comes and pokes you, you get to retaliate. And so that comes to your point about this sphere of influence idea. Um, you know, it's interesting because the sphere of influence concept has many origins. One of them, of course, goes back to the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, a very early articulation of the sphere of influence. The United States claimed the entire American hemisphere as a sphere of influence. And, and, and it, still does, more or less. Well, I actually think they have now a global Monroe Doctrine. Um, it's different. It's not exactly yeah. even just the hemisphere. Um, I think the Russians do consider parts of Eastern Europe as their sphere of influence. I think that's, that's patently obvious. They've made it clear. Um, and you can say, well, you know, that's unfair or whatever, but this is the nature of things. You know, I'm not justifying it. I just think it, this is how people see the world. Um, in, in India, ruling circles, foreign policy circles, they have an understanding of the sphere of influence. The problem for India is that the conflict with Pakistan prevents India as the major power in South Asia from having a sphere of influence. India you know, dominates in some countries that it uh, has in the region, but it's not able to even dominate Nepal, for instance, you know, which now is, is in a slightly different situation. There's a kind of political turmoil in Nepal. At any rate, the point I, I'd like to say to people is, I understand if you're Ukrainian, you don't want to be in anybody's sphere of influence. You know, you would like to have your country be an independent country. But the way we live in, the world we live in, this has become a reality that uh, big powers do play this game and have played this game for a long time. One of the things people like us, you and I and others believe in is we believe in the UN Charter, we believe in the sanctity of international law and so on. We hope that the sphere of influence concept wanes. You know, the UN Charter essentially uh, is a charter that does not validate the sphere of influence. Although, although, by having five countries be permanent members of the Security Council, Russia, France, China, Britain, uh, the United States, I mean, by having five countries be permanent members of the Security Council, there is a way in which it, in a sense, establishes the major powers, and then affords them the right to talk about their sphere of influence. What do you think France is doing in, in the Sahel region of Africa, Jay? I mean, Paul, what do you think they're doing there? You know, they consider the Sahel region and West Africa to be their sphere of influence. Okay, um, now don't suggest in any way that I'm defending any of the West claim to sphere of influence, because, no, but, no, no, but, no, uh, but, but, but we do need to say what, that the, you know whether it's effective us saying it or not international law matters and and the violation the outright violation of ukraine sovereignty and and the thousands of civilians being killed is outrageous illegal and should be denounced yes but you know why do we have to keep saying that we well we have to keep saying it well the reason we have to keep saying it because in the left 
There are so many, uh, some, I don't know how significant the opinion is, but it makes a lot of noise. Uh, in terms of the society, maybe it's not that significant, significant. But in the left, there's a lot of people justifying this Russian invasion one way or the other. Well, I don't justify the Russian invasion. But on the other hand, Paul, I, I find it offensive that uh, we have to keep saying this because, you know, when the United States and, and by the way, I, I know the history of the term whataboutism. So I, I people can accuse me of whataboutism as much as they want. What they're accusing me is they're accusing me of thinking. But, you know, when the U.S. invaded um, Iraq or when um, the Saudis bombed Yemen, commentators on MSNBC or CNN, they are not constantly saying, well, we condemn the invasion of Iraq. They, they just don't bother. Uh, but we, ha we are under pressure constantly because any critic of U.S. imperialism is accused of being a stooge for somebody. You're a stooge for Putin. You're a stooge for Assad. You're a stooge for Gaddafi. You're a stooge for this, that, and the other. And in a way, this is something, you know, we need to push back against this form of information attack. Like, I've already said that I'm against this war. You know, I've already said I'm not a stooge for Putin. I think he's doing something grievous here. But it's very interesting that we also feel, in a way, either morally, uh, you know, there's a moral necessity that we keep saying these things, or we feel boxed in, or there's an insecurity that creeps in, you know, that I don't want to be attacked as a stooge for Putin. Um, this is part of the delegitimization of the criticism, or even of thinking. After all, I think what you and I have done over these last two episodes is we're trying to think about the conflict, you know, we're your opinion or my opinion of the conflict isn't driving world history. Uh, we don't have legions of people following us who, if I say, you know, this is a terrible war, they'll all say, well, he said it's a terrible war. No, it's not like that. We are trying to think about something that's quite difficult to understand because there's so many strands. Well, then let me yeah. go back to where we kind of started in episode one because I think this is the part of the conversation that doesn't get discussed very much yes this is not a good guy bad guy wrestling match and you're supposed to root for one side or the other and if you try to say you know something critical about nato then you're a stooge for putin or vice versa this is part of the crisis of global capitalism this is this is the the global hegemon the united states faced with two what existential questions and there really are existential but in different ways. First of all, they have no idea what to do with the climate crisis. The elites know the science. They know that in, in 10, 15, 20 years, maybe less, millions and millions of people living in the South have to head north. They have zero plan for dealing with mitigating the climate crisis, or what are you gonna do when millions and millions of people head north. That's one. That's an existential threat to humanity, but in terms of the American elites, they know it's coming, but the only way out is central planning, nationalize and phase out the fossil fuel companies. You have to have a big dose of a very least, a left social democracy at the least, if you're actually going to have policy that's effective in time. Number two existential threat to the American elites, and this is part of this crisis of, of 
how parasitical and decaying global capitalism has become, to, uh, and this process of financialization, which has made so much of the economy smoke and mirrors, so it's always on the edge of uh, volatility and even collapse, but the rise of China. They have no idea how do you maintain America as the global hegemon and deal with the rise of China when you're so dependent on the Chinese market. They are so betwixt and between. You cannot give up a billion and a half people as, your, as, as probably the most lucrative market in the world, and India may become that sooner or later. Uh, you can't antagonize to such an extent. On the other hand, built into the DNA of the American elites is they gotta be number one. And the military industrial complex and fossil fuel complex and such have obviously their interest in that. So, so talk about, let's, then let's go back to the bigger picture here because hardly anybody wants to talk about it. It's all a morality play, you know, terrible Russia, terrible US, but the, the, the threats to humanity are far beyond that kind of discourse. No, look, I mean, we are basically perilously, and I, I'm not an alarmist. I, this I think is there um, at the realm of reality. In the middle of this war, the UN um, climate change body, the IPCC released a report, uh, which Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, called a red alert. He said an alarm has been uh, put out for humanity. I mean, I did not see that on the front page of the newspapers and, you know, being talked about by the commentariat and saying, you know, let's stop this war and let's have an international discussion immediately. Forget COP26, that was a disaster. Let's have a real debate. Let's shut things down. You know, let's find a way to advance, uh, to minimize the destruction of the planet. Um, that report, by the way, I only read the executive summary. I can't somehow make my way through the full report. It's a little well. Let, let me let me say I, I interviewed Peter Carter, who's a doctor, but for the last twenty years has just focused on climate, and he actually is a, a official reviewer of the IPCC, and he read the whole thing. And uh, if I understand it correctly, the summary, all the countries, sixty-seven countries or so, have to actually sign off on the summary. The rest of it, the technical report, doesn't need everyone's approval. And he says the language of the, as, 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 as exaggerated, I shouldn't say exaggerated, as threatening as the summary is, he says the rest is much more apocalyptic. Well, okay, so the summary was bad enough for me, and it's just not being taken seriously. I mean, I was at COP26, and I have to say, these are not serious people. They're not taking seriously what everybody's telling them, which is that, you know, we are in a period, a tipping point of some kind, or maybe we've passed it. Again, the debate should be about that, you know. What's the U-turn like? Uh, how do we affect the U-turn? Is it possible to, um, to save some species and so on? You know, who's going to build Noah's Ark? Um, uh, that's the debate. But it's not there. On the nuclear question, I mean, I've emphasized the nuclear question because I think it's pretty important here. Um, the United States between 2002 and 2018 have walked away from all the hard-fought nuclear agreements. At the same time, a majority of the world's countries uh, passed in the United Nations a treaty to abolish nuclear weapons. That treaty is very important. It won 
uh, ICANN, which um, drafted that treaty and campaigned for it, won them the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, so while the countries of the world are saying, let's get rid of nuclear weapons, the United States is walking away from the nuclear treaties um, that are very important. And by the way, it's not that the Russians walked away and then the U.S. left it. It's the U.S. that walked away and then the Russians left yeah. it. So again, on nuclear annihilation, not much discussion. Um, on, on the fact of poverty, you know, uh, previous to the Russian war, the numbers coming from Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN showed 2.7 billion people struggling with hunger. Um, as food prices are going to rise by 10% and more as a consequence of this war, because 25% of the world's wheat is grown in Ukraine and Russia, um, we're going to have a massive social crisis around the world. You know, in 2010, there was a drought in Ukraine and in Russia, and food prices went up. And in many ways, the Arab Spring of 2011 was a consequence of the food price inflation occasioned by the droughts in Ukraine and Russia. You know, I don't know, Paul, what kind of protest movements are going to take place around the world as food and energy prices go up because of this war. You see, there's a difference when the United States destroyed Iraq. There's a difference because to compensate for Iraqi oil, the Saudis could always immediately pump more oil out of the ground. See, if you take Ukrainian and Russian wheat offline, no country can pump wheat out of the ground. You have to grow this damn thing. It takes time to get fields going and so on. One quarter of the wheat crop is going to disappear. A country like South Africa, reliant on imports from Ukraine. This is catastrophic. Where's the conversation about this? No conversation on climate. No conversation on nuclear. No conversation on the existential crisis of hunger and, you know, in a sense, energy, real questions of energy, no conversation. I mean, honest, we are not living in a time of serious discussion about serious issues. That really is, makes me feel terrible. You know, at the meeting of Biden and the Europeans, the whole thing was about posturing regarding Russia. There was no serious conversation about how to have a negotiation, ceasefire and negotiation. You know, they were just posturing. Um, I, I actually feel like we are at a very dangerous point in the world. And I know people like you and I, we often say this is a really dangerous period in world history. But this is a really dangerous period. Yeah, this period really is a history. dangerous period. And, and I think, you know, to get back to the conversation about NATO, and to somewhat the underlying issues in terms of Russia and China is a more complicated question, but certainly for Russia and for uh, NATO and the West, uh, and particularly NATO and the West, the hatred of socialism, they would rather the world go to hell than actually have a serious look of whether some form of socialism is necessary. They'd rather the climate crisis and human civilization as we know it, especially in the United States, uh, than even a kind of centrally, somewhat centrally planned social democracy. Now, they don't, they're not against central planning because obviously the Pentagon is a form of central planning. So if it's for war and arms industry, they're all for that much central planning. Um, but this, this underlying hatred of socialism was certainly perhaps the prime mission of NATO. NATO was to make sure socialism never came to power in Europe. 
Um, and uh, you know, you uh, people watching this know, I guess, the history of how popular both the communist parties and socialist parties were after World War II, and the, and the extent to which NATO intervened and the Americans intervened to prevent legitimate election victories by the left, and still does. Um, but we're at such an existential moment. And, uh, you know, as my, you know, I, I'm not emotional uh, as, I, as some, my Romanian friend I talked about at the beginning about the Russian invasion of Ukraine just because I, I've gotten, you know, you know, with the U.S. invasion in Iraq, uh, the, the wars in Yemen, and there's horrible things going on in the world. But nothing's as horrible as what's coming in terms of climate and accidental nuclear war, if not deliberate. And there's, as you say, th there's no serious conversation going on, and including most of the left. 100% agree with you. Um, you know, here's a good place to end. Um, I just went and saw the new Dune, um, which I, I liked very much. Uh, I, I'm a fan of science fiction movies generally, and science fiction novels and so on. Um, Octavio Butler great writer and, you know, uh, must be read. Um, many years ago, a, a important Marxist critic said that uh, people in the West in particular have an easier time imagining the end of the world than imagining a socialist <laughs> world. Uh, they have an easier time. Um, if you look at films, um, films, there are many more apocalyptic films. I mean, why can't we imagine a better world uh, then imagine the end of the world. And perhaps that's a question for people to try to think about. Why can't we talk about a better world than the end of the world? And that requires um, not the elites to drive the conversation, but it requires us ordinary people uh, to have the confidence that a better world is possible uh, and not that the end of the world is inevitable. You know, the end of the world is not nigh. Uh, the end of the world is not necessary. Um, we can actually build something better, but we need to develop in ourselves, us ordinary people, the confidence to build something better. That's tough. All right, well, next time we interview, let's focus on that. All right, thanks for joining me, Vijay. And thank you thanks for joining us on the analysis.news.